Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Nat Malkus. Nat is a resident scholar and the deputy director of education policy here at AEI, where he specializes in empirical research on K-12 schooling. He's a national expert on a range of educational issues affecting students across the country, including career and technical education, school choice, advanced placement, standardized testing, and how the nation's schools responded to the COVID pandemic. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Nat. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you, Nat. You're one of my favorite scholars, and I, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, but I've been getting a little bit of flack from banter listeners that I don't let Phoebe ask enough questions. So, Phoebe, you have the first one. Very exciting. <laughs> Changing it up. And you can have the second and third two if you <laughs> I'll want. Just, you know, I'll just take over from <laughs> yeah, here. That's right. So, Nat, you have this very exciting project coming out, a school tracker that, that kind of tracks how schools across the country, public schools, have responded to COVID. Could you tell us just a little overview of the project? How did you decide to take it on? Yeah, it was really born out of the work that we did last spring when schools shut down. And back then, I was looking around for data on what are all these schools doing now that they're closed and really couldn't find any. This is, you know, around the end of March, two weeks after almost everybody had shut down. And there's that old adage, if you don't have the data you want, go get it. And that's what we did. So we surveyed a nationally representative sample of school districts six times back in the spring to watch their responses unfold. And that was informative and helpful. And and we produced a bunch of reports and we followed those up at the beginning of the school year. But what we wanted to do for the next school year was get a little bit more ambitious. Instead of having individuals look up on a small set of district websites to see what they were doing, we wanted to capture them all pretty much. So this new tracker, which we've been working on for a long time, is a pretty audacious goal. We're trying to use a web scraping machine learning approach to basically visit the websites of all the school districts in the nation with at least three schools. So that's not all of them, but it's all the big ones. And get data from the website each week and then have a combination of computers and people evaluate that text to see how they are operating their schools, whether they're full-time in person, whether they're full-time remote, or somewhere in between. We finally sort of got all these things together, and so we should be able to present this not just once, but updating it every week for about 82,000 schools based on what their districts are doing. Wow, 82,000 schools. That's a big database. And so we're we're having this interview in mid-February, and There's a lot of controversy about schools reopening or not reopening or in-person or not in-person. Broadly speaking, what are you seeing? How widespread are schools not open in person? Is it 100% of schools now in America or where? Where are we? That's exactly the question to ask. So the first thing to know is there's a lot of schools that are open in person five days a week. Now, this isn't business as usual in almost any school in the nation. So when I say they're in person five days a week, they're probably doing social distancing or requiring masks, adjusting their transportation systems. They're not just running schools with a blind eye towards COVID, but a substantial amount of schools are open in person. Right now, and we look at this in the district level. So when I say it's in person, that means every school in the district. 
is in person five days a week. So it's a pretty strict measure. More than a quarter of schools are there right now. And then about half of school districts have some kids going in some capacity. So a lot of times when you read the papers, you think, oh, all the schools are shut down. But that's really not the case. And as COVID cases are going down and as fatigue with closed schools or hybrid operations increases, the direction that we've been moving since early January is decidedly toward more in-person instruction. Well, more than a quarter sounds like less than a third, which means two-thirds are not open in person five days a week, which, which is, a, is troubling to parents and kids in the country. I bring this up because I have a brother in Indiana who has grandchildren, several grandchildren, and he, they all live in, around him in Indiana, and he loves to make fun of all of us on the East Coast by saying his school's in Indianapolis are open five days a week, and he takes his grandchildren to school. These are K through 12, and teachers are out welcoming kids into the school, and he sort of makes fun of us on the coasts as being more likely to still be closed to in-person instruction. Is there a regional difference or even maybe a political difference? Are, are red states more likely to have open schools and blue states closed schools? The short answer is yes. We found this first in our survey where we followed up our spring cohort. So this wasn't the tracker survey, but this was looking at how districts opened up with our representative sample. We found a really big difference between red states and blue states and purple states were somewhere in the middle. Now, that was done in October, so that wasn't based on 2020 voting numbers. The tracker that we have now disaggregates districts by their Trump-Biden vote share just this November. So we have a pretty good measure. And quite frankly, the differences are enormous. So when you talk about districts that are completely closed, districts that went for Biden, about 40% of them now are fully closed compared to just 15% of districts that were Trump districts. And when you want to talk about which districts are open despite high COVID rates, which we sort of classify as risky openings. And that's not a judgment. It's just a description. Mm -hmm. But there's less than 10% of districts that are sort of risking reopening despite high COVID rates in Biden districts. And it's above a quarter of the districts in places that voted for Trump. So I would say that actually the political divide is about as big as we can find. Hmm. That's fascinating. And also, I wanted to ask, you know, the teachers unions are everywhere. They're in Biden districts and Trump districts. They're in red states and blue states. Does this say something about their relative power in those areas? Because in the debate I've seen in some of the school boards that have been reported in the newspapers, it's often parents versus teachers union. What say you about that? So there's a lot of examples out there that you can see of unions being extremely averse to coming back to schools. And oftentimes this can get you into places where you really have some contrived and crazy situations, like kids are coming to schools, but they're learning remotely at schools mm -hmm. so that the teachers aren't looking over students and, and doing the classroom management, but they're teaching remotely. That kind of thing seems strange to me. 
Getting a handle on this at a wide range is pretty difficult, largely because I don't have a good measure for where teachers unions are particularly strong or particularly weak. Certainly when you see things in districts like Chicago, there's plenty to raise your eyebrows about. Mm -hmm. And the alignment with the urban-suburban divide or urban-rural divide that we see aligns with some of those teachers union power dynamics. But it's hard to say with anything that locks it down. I will say that the circumstantial evidence does suggest that unions play a pretty potent role in a number of districts in discouraging returns to school in ways that align with some of the things you see in the papers. Right. And we want to talk a little bit also just about the impact that this is having on kids who are who are home, especially in the areas that haven't reopened even partially. So, I mean, who, who have you seen being impacted the most? Is it the students that were already struggling or, you know, having a hard time before COVID? Is this just kind of widening that achievement gap? Phoebe, how long do you have? <laughs> at length 30 on. more minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let me take let me let me take a quick overview. First of all, what did we learn about last spring? Well, last spring in our survey, we found out pretty clear divides about more disadvantaged districts having worse or less ambitious remote educational programs mm -hmm. than more advantaged ones. Curiously, this was not driven by race as uniformly as it was by poverty. Usually when we look at disadvantage in schools, race and poverty are sort of highly correlated. But we found some distinctions there largely because in urban centers, they had a lot more remote infrastructure that they could take advantage of. So there was a divide in the spring, and that's, that divide definitely exacerbated achievement gaps, especially by poverty. In other words, the poor got poorer, and we also were able to look at it by student test scores. And indeed, districts that had lower testing students historically had worse remote platforms. Okay, so that is the end of last school year. In looking at it this school year, I've done a number of dives on this, but you know, I will refer you to my own AEI podcast, The Report Card. Just a couple <laughs> knew that of weeks was coming. Ago, <laughs> of course you did. A couple of weeks ago, we had some folks from McKinsey and NWEA, which has a bunch of testing data, about how they work handicapping what they call learning loss. And it's important to understand that learning loss here isn't thought of as, did kids just get lower scores on a test, but did they forego the learning that they probably would have had mm -hmm. if it weren't for the pandemic. Early on, both of these groups predicted huge losses, just enormous losses for students in terms of almost a year of learning over six to seven months. And then later on, they got better data and they could sort of revise those things. And what they found was that in math, losses were greater than in English and that the losses were worse for disadvantaged students, particularly minority students. So when you put this all together, I think, yeah, the yawning achievement gap that have been growing slowly, despite all our efforts to close them over the past 40 years, are going to yawn much wider. And the breaking point is going to be March 2020. And on the pot, not that there's a positive side to this, but I do want to, I want to come back to the people that face disadvantages or difficulties, but just ask one question about the possibility that some kids are learning more 
in this circumstance because of the attention of their parents or because with frustration with the public school system, those parents just found a different option that was better. Is that happening too? Are there practices with regard to teaching kids K through 12 or in elementary school that parents have decided to solve for themselves, either by choosing a different option than public education or homeschooling that may be one positive of this? Or or am I trying to find the positive from a bad story? Well, I appreciate your optimism, Robert. (laughs) I'll say this. It's hard to know this at scale. So yes, there are certainly instances where you can see, you know, flowers blooming in this time. Some students will say, I love this. I'm learning so much more. I'm less distracted than I was. My personal take is that's more idiosyncratic than it is widely dispersed. When you talk about families being able to find ways around it, absolutely. I think there are families who have found ways like hybrid homeschooling or pandemic pods where they can at least minimize the downsides of this. And in some ways, sure. Of course, you have to have some resources. And these aren't just money. It's also a huge wellspring of patience if you're going to do homeschooling for your kids. And not everybody has that. So I think widespread, those sort of upsides are extremely difficult to scale. One other thing I'll say, we're tracking a number of variables with our tracker. One of those is the percentage of families in a district that have single mothers as the head of the household. And unfortunately, the proportion of districts that are above average in terms of having single mothers are much more likely to be fully remote. That, to me, suggests a real, real problem. I mean, you just think about it. These single mothers ostensibly have to work. They also have to run some sort of home-based supplement to students' remote learning because any parent will tell you they are playing a major role if their student is succeeding in remote learning. And that, to me, suggests a really important opportunity for folks who are looking at the benefit of these students to really find the people that are going to have the hardest time with remote learning and get them back in school. Because the greatest technology for education that we actually have probably is the school building itself. Just get them in the schools where they're all in the same place. And we never really thought about that technology as important until we had to go without it. So there's been a little bit of news about President Biden's commentary on this topic. And I guess I just would like to ask you, given the, these difficulties and these problems and these gaps and this loss of learning, what do you think national leaders should do about it? There's a number of things that they should do about it. Let me just first take on what Biden has, has done since he was elected. I thought it was great that President Biden said, in 100 days, I want to get kids back in school. We can do it. I'm going to lead the charge. I thought that was good for a number of reasons. He picked a secretary of education that doesn't have a whole lot of history behind him, except that he did push for reopening in his state. So that's, that's good. And President Biden also made up you know, his own promise. Within 100 days, this is a priority. I gave him credit for those things and hoped that he would hold that. And again, we need to remember that in districts that voted for him, they were much more likely to be remote. So that means that the people 
that voted for him, and I assume are most likely to listen to him, are the ones who could benefit the most from his leadership on this issue. Mm -hmm. Again, that's getting schools open where it's safe. Now, since then, we've had some mixed messages. The press secretary walked back this promise a couple of times. First, it wasn't all schools. It was just K-8. And then after that, they defined the majority of schools being open as at least 51% being open for one day a week, <laughs> which is weak tea Bit for sure. Stretch, yeah. And then I was not kind writing about this issue and took them to task. And I don't think it was because he read mine, but just recently, the president on a CNN town hall reaffirmed his earlier statement. No, we want all students back. That means five days a week in school and we can do it. And we need to put the resources out there to make that happen. Of course, when you're trying to get something done from the bully pulpit, consistency and leadership is what we need. And so those mixed messages really make it difficult. And the only other thing I'll add is the CDC regulations that have come out recently make it very difficult to push districts hard given current COVID rates or even rates at about half of current COVID rates. Fortunately, they're falling quickly. And it also gives a lot of leverage for opponents of reopening, not just teachers unions, but teachers unions included, to fight for what they call safe reopening, which is often delayed reopening. I know the tracker is on opening and learning loss and tracking that. But at some point, will you knit together data on positivity rate and illness or hospitalization or death by whether school districts opened or didn't open fully in person? I think that would be yes. interesting to find out. I mean, are the schools that have gone back aggressively, are more children getting infected? Are more hospitalizations occurring? Are more teachers getting infected and hospitalized? Do we know that? What's your hope on that analysis? So, Robert, you're asking all the right questions. And some early work has been done on this in December and January. A couple of really strong papers came out, really done quickly, too. And they used some reopening data, including some that we've been able to incorporate into our tracker. And they looked at community spread and whether that was exacerbated by in-person schooling in the fall and also hospitalization, because that's a little bit firmer measure. And in both cases, what they basically found was, at least until COVID rates go really high, like they did in late November, there's no clear evidence at all of community spread or of increased hospitalization. So basically, you can do this with the right mitigation measures in place. It's not as dangerous as we first thought. There's an important caveat here, and that is their data only went into November, right? And we know what happened in November. Cases went through the roof. So it raised a real open question, especially during January when there was, there was no telling where cases were going to go or how long they were going to be high of, well, is returning safe? I think now that cases are really dropping incredibly low and just astonishingly low, that the evidence that we have from the fall comes back into play very strongly to say, yeah, we can do this. Yep. And so I, I, I do think that there's very little evidence that we've had to keep schools closed and not bring students back under you know, reasonable mitigation strategies. As far as our tracker, we definitely have COVID case rates 
married to our data, and, and that will be available. But our tracker does a couple of things. First of all, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a little reticent to do epidemiological work and get out of my wheelhouse. But part of the reason that we built the tracker wasn't just to give the weather report, yeah. but to collect the data for the entire year. So the, we have a lot of quality assurance work to do and especially work to do to patching up our time series in the fall, which now is a long time ago. But we've been scraping data and gathering data across the entire year for tons of districts. And our plan is to have a data set that marks districts in one of these categories for every week of this entire school year. So that would be all districts with three plus. And I am happy to share that data with researchers doing good work to try and get better answers to those questions, both in the short term, but also three, four, five years from now, when I imagine many a dissertation will be looking at what happened during this pandemic in the schools of the United States. So we're now going to turn to what do we do now, both reopening and also sort of addressing the lost learning. And I'd love your thoughts on this, but I do want to tell a little story. My first exposure to political activism was when I was seven or eight years old. Somehow or another, my dad had become the president of the New York City School Board during and after the very long, I think it was almost a year-long school strike in New York City in 1969. There was a lot of complexities to that dispute, and we're not going to get into any of those, except that when the teachers finally came back and the schools were reopened, the school board, under my father's leadership, imposed an extra 45 minutes a day to the school days, to the curriculum. I was sitting in our house in Brooklyn. I looked out the window one morning, and there were a bunch of High school students parading, <laughs> chanting, hey, ho, 45 minutes has got to go. <laughs> so, so I know about making efforts to redress lost school time. What are your recommended efforts to, to address lost school time in the coming year? So there's a lot of potential answers to this question. People talk about high-intensity tutoring. Yes, that can work. I argue it's fairly hard to scale. I especially argue that it's hard to do well while kids are remote. But I think it's really important to get focused on the first order steps that we should take. The first thing we should do is stop the bleeding. The best way to get kids back on track is to get their bodies in schools, in front of teachers, take the safety precautions, spend the money that we need to do. Some of it is going to be demanded by people for reasons that may not hold up, but the important thing now is to get kids in school. Yeah. And part of the reason that early expenses don't matter so much is the long-term expenses are enormous. The longer we keep kids out of school, the further they get behind. We will feel those delays in terms of GDP eventually. That's not the real reason to do it, but it's the motivating factor on cost. The same thing, and this really needs to, you know, it's very easy to measure some things. I can measure reading. I can get somebody else to measure math proficiency. But we've seen the pain that these closures have caused kids, the psychosocial pain that being alone for a year in their house without, you know, the basic kinds of development that you get from schools. And we really should never start with learning loss. We should start there. Those are the things that we need to work on. So, yes. Get kids back in school, that makes a smaller problem to deal with. Nonetheless, we will have a, a large problem to deal with. 
I don't know the perfect answers to these things. I think there are going to be a bunch of kids that get the opportunity to go to school this summer, not summer school, just we're going to get you in buildings for time that you wouldn't otherwise have had. They're probably going to say, hey, ho, hey, ho. (laughs) Summer school has to go. (laughs) Yeah. However. Mandatory summer school. I'm for that. They're all going to come pick it again. (laughs) It would be very, very wise for districts to target some of this stuff. I talked earlier about how, depending on your home situation, you could be really hurting or doing pretty well. And we see this in the economics of COVID as well, that sort of high wage households, they're doing okay. I would like to point out, he just made a very good point there. Because, and this is controversial, and I think you're endorsing this. I hope you are, because it's been one of my pet peeves for a long time. He said targeting some of those attention. Mm-hmm. And who was, what was the family type he said was most burdened by this single problem? Moms. Households with single parents. And, you know, we always talk about addressing issues concerning racial gaps or income gaps by income status. But I would love it if a school decided to do a special program targeted at children in single-parent households, they don't do it very often. And the reluctance has meant that they've not been able to really target their attention to kids most in need. At least that's my point. Were you saying that? Were, Were you saying that schools should target their learning loss mediation efforts this summer toward households where children are raised by a single parent? Well, I think there's going to be some overlap here, but I'll say that all these things are sort of brute force things. For instance, When we say, well, poor kids need to go back to school. Well, some poor kids definitely do, and maybe a higher proportion of them do. But there's also some kids in wealthier homes that are getting just as hammered. So I think that the best thing for school districts to do are to think through who really needs these extra supports, how much do they have to give out, and then allocate accordingly. That shouldn't necessarily be all for some and none for others. But if you are a only child of a single mother who has not been to school in a year, let's get all those kids in summer school. If you are a second grader or first grader who hasn't been to school in a year, good Lord, let's get those kids in school as, as early as possible. So I think that there's targeting on those bases. There's certainly targeting on contesting that we could do. And, you know, the other thing to remember here is that especially for kids, are going to be out the whole year. And there are already some districts who have already announced, yeah, we're staying out for the whole year. That next school year, at the beginning in August, when you bring these kids back, especially kids who haven't been in school for 15 months, that's going to be a very difficult beginning of the school year. Just retraining kids in the basic sort of language of schooling, standing in line, participating in classes, doing your work, sharing, these basic things that we take for granted. We learn those by repeating those behaviors in school, especially if we're five, six, seven, eight years old. Sharing is caring. And for a bunch of kids who have been out of that, indeed, a bunch of kids who have been out of those environments for a while, it's not like we're going to start next August after being out for 15 months and kick it off running. We are going to have to learn to walk again before we can run. So any option to get kids back in school to habituate them to those lessons at the end of this year may do less for immediate learning gains and do more for equipping next year to start off strong. 
Okay, so I have two more questions, and I'm going to get them in. Phoebe, I'm sorry, but I'm going I'm to get them in. <laughs> Go ahead. If you got some, rank on your page. <laughs> uh, one is a little we haven't asked you about, and I don't know that you ever write about, but one group that's been hurt by all this, or maybe they haven't been hurt, are athletes, high school athletes who are devoted to their sport. I had a teacher in high school who was a very prominent education scholar, Ted Sizer. And he used to say that the best teaching in many schools happens on the athletic fields, in the coaching. Have you covered that at all? And have the sports teams found a way to continue their activities, notwithstanding the schools are closed? Or do you not know anything about that issue? But does it ever come up in your study? We have not systematically gathered information on that. We somewhat by necessity have had to trim the depth of our data to maintain the breadth of it. However, I have read a lot of school district website content over the past year, I assure you. Sure. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, you know that, <laughs> I do know that there are districts that are closed for instruction, but have sports ongoing. And that's easy to pillory, but it stands to reason in places where sports are part of the oh, I take culture it. and they're outside. It's organized activity, you just outside. said, yeah. getting kids together, getting them to come to a regularly scheduled activity. If the building is important, right. the sports the field is also important. I, I wouldn't pillory that. And again, it shows you, sure. you know, they have a passion. Sure. So in other words, that's very interesting. Schools are closed, but sports teams are playing. I that's don't have kids in high school anymore, but, but I would have predicted that. That is the exception to the rule, but it, but it exists out there. And, you know, it also depends on the sport. So Robert, my son, desperately wanted to wrestle. He's a wrestler and he wanted to wrestle in his first year in high school. And wrestling is not a COVID friendly. Sport. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> yeah. One, yeah. <laughs> any dimension. So even if you're wearing a mask, when they say go cross face, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, yeah. the mask is, is gone. So, you know, some of these sports can't be done. But I will tell you that for students who have gone without the camaraderie and the teamwork that you get just in regular schooling, that a great way to make that up is by getting kids back on the volleyball court or the soccer field or the baseball diamond or wherever they are used to doing that. And the more of that we have, the more likely we are to get kids sort of back into the social emotional health that, you know, is not always met by the classroom environment. Sometimes you got to do it on the field or you got to have that relationship with the coach. So. It's just a word of caution that I would make to school leaders to say, don't give short shrift to extracurricular activities. In fact, make a strong plea to your district and to your state to give you the funding to make sure that the kids get back on the field as soon as it's safe. So the last question is, there are some people that say that high quality charter schools, which are also public schools, offer a better educational experience for kids than regular public schools. But let's posit that as a possibility. During this COVID crisis, has the quality gap between good charter schools and regular public schools widened? Have they been better at doing either remote learning or getting kids back into the classroom than regular public schools? Does your tracker show anything regarding that? No, it doesn't. So I know a little bit on this, which is to say that actually charters behave fairly similarly. Mm -hmm to their local district schools. And there's a lesson there. 
but we don't track charters and it's just for a practical reason. Our data source is for geographically continuous districts represented on a website that uses it as a communication platform. Charters are spread all over the place. Some charters are, you know, in multiple cities and so forth. So then we'd have to track the school level websites. And many charters are one or two school operations. Right. So we don't cover charters with our tracker. But I will say that there's something here to understanding the nature of school closures in the pandemic in identifying that these charters, which are supposed to have more authority to operate on their own responsibility and be less tied to the district, why would they still be operating in ways that are generally more similar to the public schools in their area? And I think it's because closure decisions uh, are not nearly as based on science as we would like to think they are. They are based on the culture of your populace. And in the places where the idea that schools just aren't safe, you can't bring kids back and teachers back because it's unsafe, where that theory is held as truth, that really reigns supreme. And it is the cultural battlefield. Yeah. along which school reopenings are being debated. And again, I'll come back to the need for the Biden administration and President Biden himself to show consistent leadership here, because I think that we have a pretty good track record right now of science saying, yes, take mitigation strategies. Yes, take them seriously. And yes, get the kids back in school, because we are not going to see the kinds of community spread and hospitalization that we were afraid of. And that's why we need leadership on these, because it's a belief issue. It's a cultural issue. And anybody who tells you that it's just strictly about the science is choosing their own science. Well, that is a good, good way to, to end. end on. Yeah. And thank you a lot, Nat. It's really been a pleasure to have you. Phoebe, do you have any final words? No, this was great. Thanks, Nat. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.